Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. In December of 2020, there were approximately 7.8 billion people on planet Earth. There are 70 billion farm animals. We're able to fly in jets to anywhere in the world within just a few hours. Over 80 cities on the planet have more than 5 million people in them. There has never been more people on the planet and we have never had a higher risk for infectious diseases, epidemics, and pandemics. We live in a time where things like clean water and sanitation have made modern life possible. On top of those two things, there is one tool which has allowed us to enjoy a modern life largely free of diseases which formerly plagued our society and killed billions, and those are vaccinations. I'm going to use the term vaccination and immunization interchangeably, but we should all take a minute and be thankful for these biological tools because they have done miraculous things and allowed us to live the modern lives we enjoy today. Humans and other vertebrates have both an innate and an adaptive immune system. Our innate immune system is already hardwired at the time when we are made. It is a very conserved set of immunologic strategies that we use to protect us from various microorganisms and other potential invaders inside our bodies. On the contrary, the adaptive immune system is a learned immune system. Through exposure to organisms, both friend and foe, our immune systems can learn and understand what to do and how to react in certain situations. Now, for the majority of human history, this adaptive immune system has relied completely on our surroundings on the organisms living on and around us. However, in the last few hundred years, we have learned strategies to educate our immune system, namely vaccination and immunization. These tools are profound. They've given us the techniques to potentially eradicate multiple human pathogens that kill lots and lots of people. I would argue that vaccinations are the most important clinical technological advancement ever created by man and women, of course. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the types of vaccines currently available in the United States or currently licensed in the United States, other vaccines available worldwide, the different types of vaccines, which include whole organisms which have been inactivated, whole organisms which are still alive but have been attenuated or weakened so that they cannot cause strong infection, subunit vaccines which are made up of specific single or multiple antigens from a given organism, 
subunit vaccines which are conjugated to other proteins or molecules to enhance the immunogenic response to them. Toxoid vaccines, sorry, toxoid vaccines are the toxins which are made by given organisms, which sometimes are the actual agents which cause disease, as is the case in infections like tetanus and diphtheria. We're going to talk about heterotypic vaccines, which are other organisms which do not cause serious disease in humans, but are similar enough to the infecting organism so that our immune systems can then recognize the infecting organism should we become infected with it. To highlight these different types of vaccines, we're going to look at examples from the current recommended infant and child vaccines in the United States, all of which are extremely safe and most of which are very, very effective. In the United States in 2020, we have vaccines effective against 26 different human diseases. Additionally, there are other vaccines which we have for animals, horses, dogs, etc. I'm going to go ahead and quickly name the 26 diseases we currently have vaccines. Adenovirus, anthrax, cholera, diphtheria, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hemophilia influenza type V, human papilloma virus, influenza, Japanese encephalitis, measles, Neisseria meningitis, mumps, pertussis, streptococcus pneumonia, polio, rabies, rotavirus, rubella, shingles, smallpox, tetanus, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, varicella zoster virus, and yellow fever. Now, worldwide, there's a few additional vaccines available as well, and those include tick-borne encephalitis, hepatitis E, dengue fever, and even malaria. Falciparum, in fact. Now, this vaccine is not very good, but you better believe that better vaccines are going to come down the pipeline, and we could someday get rid of malaria, which would be an absolute game changer on the worldwide uh, spectrum. On top of those already available vaccines, there are lists on the internet of 10, 20, 30 vaccines which are currently in the pipeline for development. The number of neglected tropical vaccine or the number of neglected tropical diseases which we have the technology to make vaccines against right now is a long list and you better believe that as travel increases as we have more people from developed nations traveling to developing nations there's going to be a financial incentive to make those vaccines and eventually those vaccines are going to become available to the populations living in those countries endemic to those neglected tropical diseases who need them the most i think we have a very very bright future with regard to infectious diseases and i think we have vaccines to thank let's start off the conversation with a bit about adverse reactions. There are a few adverse reactions which are fairly common for most all vaccines, and those are local inflammatory reactions. So basically you get a little bit of pain, tenderness in the area where the vaccine was injected. This typically lasts only a few days at most, and generally things like warm compresses, Tylenol, ibuprofen can be really helpful. The next fairly common problem is a low-grade fever and very mild malaise. Sometimes vaccines can cause us to get low fevers. 
this is not something to be very worried about. It can be uncomfortable. It can make people say, I don't want to get the flu vaccine next year because it made me feel bad for a day this year. But in general, with a little bit of Tylenol and a little bit of time, that will go away as well. There are a few more serious reactions which can occur. It is possible to have allergic reactions to vaccines as well as ingredients within a vaccine. Any person who has had a severe allergic reaction to a given vaccine or to any component within that vaccine should not receive that vaccine. And those are rare, but they do happen, and we need to not give people things that have caused anaphylaxis or severe allergic reactions. The next thing that comes up, which is very, very, very rare, is unusual neurologic reactions. This is something which tends to happen in astronomically small amounts of people. One per hundred thousand, one per million, one per even less. And these are things like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an ascending paralysis, which can be very, very serious. There's also other uh, neurologic reactions that can occur. They are very rare. If someone has had one of these severe reactions to a given vaccine, they should not be given that vaccine again. Aside from those two things, most all other reactions and problems which you hear about are mostly made up by people spreading false rumors about vaccines. For instance, autism was a big, big news item regarding the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. And because scientists take these accusations accusations so seriously, we did a very, very large study looking for a link between measles, mumps, and rubella and autism. And we actually found that people who receive the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine have a 7% decreased risk of developing autism. Basically, there was no correlation with developing the disease, and that was debunked. And unfortunately, people then just move on to the next thing. One thing that a lot of people have raised concern about is one of the preservatives that are in uh, or were in a lot of vaccines. And this is a compound called thimerosal. This is an organomercury compound, which is antiseptic and antifungal and basically preserves the vaccine. There's been historical cases in the past of vaccines being contaminated and causing severe infections in individuals because you essentially inoculate an infection underneath their skin. And because of those accusations, which have never actually been proven, we've removed uh, thimerosal from essentially all of our routine pediatric vaccines uh, because of that concern. On top of that, people often raise concerns about other ingredients in vaccines. Aluminum compounds are often used as conjugates, which we'll talk about are things we attach to antigens within a given vaccine to make them more immunogenic and people uh, raise concerns about those. These things are all worth looking into and we certainly should look into them. But I will say at this point in 2020, all of the pediatric vaccines are very safe. They are much, 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 much safer than contracting the infections which they are meant to stop. And while we should continue to study them and look into any problems, there is no excuse for not giving a healthy child these vaccines. 
at least according to the scientific evidence we currently have available. In the United States, we have a system called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. You can find it very easily online, and anyone who administers vaccines is supposed to be reporting any adverse effects they get, which may or may not, but possibly could be related to any vaccine. On top of that, if anybody is shown to have undergone or sustained harm from a given vaccine, there's a National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, and that's designed for any of the very, very rare individuals who have a severe problem or anyone else who has a problem with the vaccine that doesn't resolve in in a few days like the soreness or the fevers. And so we're keeping really close eye on any problems with vaccines. We are compensating any of the extremely rare cases that do cause harm. And in general, I just want people to know that the people involved with vaccine research, distribution, um, clinical care, really care about kids probably as much or more than anyone else. And we want them to be safe and we want these vaccines to be safe. So we are keeping an eye on this ourselves and trying to police things and remove anything that could be causing problems as soon as possible. And I know many other nations have very similar programs uh, which both uh, track adverse reactions and compensate individuals who who are, are the rare ones who do have serious problems. When we think about vaccines, we usually think about infectious disease and getting rid of pathogens that infect us and kill us. But vaccines actually can do more than just combat against infectious disease. And there is now increasing research in the field of oncology or cancer medicine, looking at vaccines as potential therapies for things like melanoma. A lot of the direct therapeutic vaccines have not been successful to date, though I am confident that in the future they will make breakthroughs. And really, it's just, again, educating our immune system. If we can teach our immune system how to recognize a cancer cell, it can then use our our own body's defenses to go after and destroy that cell. By a different mechanism, we are actually currently ridding the world of a different type of cancer, and that is cervical cancer. Human papillomavirus is essentially the main cause by far of cervical cancer in the United States and the rest of the world. And as more and more young women are vaccinated with the human papillomavirus, we are going to see increasingly small amounts of highly oncogenic HPV strains in our population. And we're going to see the rates of cervical cancer fall. And I'm so excited to see that. I'm excited to see what that does to screening recommendations in the next 20 years. Uh, 40 years, 50 years. It should be really cool, and I'm really excited. Another uh, vaccine used in cancer is the tuberculosis um, BCG vaccine. It's often injected uh, intravesicularly into the bladder for people with bladder cancer. And I didn't take a deep dive into what that's doing, but but I assume it's it's um, somehow informing the immune system to uh, get their butts over there and, and hopefully help take care of the cancer. But an interesting therapeutic um, 
use of a vaccine as well. And so, again, not just not just vaccines for infectious disease, but also cancer, possibly um, things like autoimmune diseases. Uh, really, the sky is the limit. We we just don't know that much about the immune system. We're able to primitively educate it. And in the future, I think we're going to be able to do amazing things with these powerful biological tools. Another fun application of vaccines is against uh, rattlesnake venom in dogs. You can actually vaccinate your dog so that they can make antibodies quickly against rattlesnake venom. And uh, just a cool use of vaccines, I think, in one of the all right, let's talk about the different types of vaccines currently available and in use. And the first one I want to talk about are heterotypic vaccines. So these are essentially vaccines which are organisms that are similar to the infection we're trying to vaccinate against. They are similar enough that our immune system can then recognize the worse, more infectious organism but they're different enough that they do not cause serious infection in humans. And the best example of that is the pox virus vaccinia. This was used to vaccinate the world essentially against smallpox. There is still a vaccine available that uses vaccinia for that purpose. Uh, like again, if bioterrorism uh, catastrophe ever happens and smallpox is released either as an act of terror or if it just got loose from a laboratory or um, you know if it just reemerged from some population of humans we're unaware of that will be important again for us to all get uh, another example of a heterotypic vaccine is the tuberculosis vaccine this is actually um, the organism mycobacterium bovis and now this this is somewhat of an attenuated vaccine which we'll talk about yet so not not a true or solely heterotypic vaccine but this is, a, is an organism which is from cows, similar to Mycobacterium tuberculosis. And it's given to kids in countries where there's high incidence of either Mycobacterium tuberculosis or leprosy, which is caused by Mycobacterium leprae and other Mycobacterium. It also shows uh, or, or can be potentially helpful against Mycobacterium ulcerans, which causes the skin disease Borreliose ulcer, which is these, these bad ulcer or large ulcer that just doesn't heal. All of the other major classes of vaccines have vaccines represented in the infant and child recommended vaccines in the United States. And so I want to take this opportunity to, one, go over those different types of vaccines, but also highlight all of the vaccines on the infant and child recommended list. These recommendations come from the Center for Disease Control in combination with the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, ACIP, along with other medical bodies like the American Academy of Pedi Pediatrics, American Academy of Family Physicians, and other uh, players with vested interests. The first group of vaccines and the biggest split in the vaccine world, I would say, is between live attenuated vaccines and other vaccines. A live attenuated vaccine is a living organism this vaccine is in fact alive but it's been attenuated 
And that means it's been weakened. It's been changed such that it's no longer capable of causing severe or even really infection in normal healthy individuals. There are basically four different vaccines that are in this category for the peds in the United States and those are the rotavirus vaccine, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, and the varicella, varicella zoster vaccine. And I want to go over both of those real quickly. The rotavirus vaccine is again live attenuated. There's two different types in the United States, uh, RV5 and RV1. The RV1 is nice because you only need to have doses at two and four months. With the RV5 you need an additional dose at six months. It's derived from, or at least the RV1 is derived from the most common serotype combination, G1P8. It is basically attenuated by being grown in serial cell cultures during which it undergoes or sustains mutations in its DNA which make it less pathogenic to humans. This is an orally administered vaccine. Everybody should know that rotavirus is the most common cause of severe acute gastroenteritis worldwide. And since severe gastroenteritis or diarrhea is the second leading cause of death in children less than five years of age, this makes it a pretty darn important deal. A lot of potential for lives saved with this particular vaccine. What's the number one cause of death in children less than five years of age? Drowning. Drowning, drowning, drowning. Keep those kids away from water sources, teach them how to swim early. Drowning can be a devastating thing and happens everywhere. Rotavirus is a double-stranded RNA virus in the Roviridae, Rovir, Roviridae family. Sorry, not very good at saying that. It is contraindicated in severe combined immunodeficiency. But in other immunodeficiencies, it should probably be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. In general, all of the live attenuated vaccines need to be given very cautiously or potentially not given at all in those individuals who have immunodeficiency. We throw pregnancy into that category of immunodeficiency and so you should never give your pregnant women live attenuated vaccines. You should wait and give it to them after they are, pre they are done being pregnant. Now, on the other hand, people with immunodeficiencies are at great risk for infection. They need vaccination more than anyone because they are the very people who can get very sick if they get the infection. So for a lot of these, for instance, if someone has a human immunodeficiency virus, but it's well controlled and they have an essentially an intact immune system, they oftentimes should receive the vaccine. 
but if they've got rip-roaring immunodeficiency, really low T-cell counts, you probably want to hold off, get them on heart therapy, reconstitute, the, reconstitute that immune system, and then give the vaccine. What I would recommend is that any time you have somebody with an immunodeficiency, look up the recommendations. Get on the CDC, the American College of Immunization Practices, the World Health Organization. Get on and read about that particular immunodeficiency and figure out what you might need to do to get them that vaccine. In some cases, individuals with immunodeficiency simply cannot receive a vaccine. It's just too dangerous. The chances of that vaccine causing the real infection and severe harm in such individuals can be high enough that it's just not worth it. And in that case, those individuals rely on the rest of us to get vaccinated so that we can provide herd immunity. If an individual gets a vaccine, they are protected against that particular infection, however much efficacious that vaccine may be. If enough people in a given population get a given vaccine, eventually, when a high enough threshold is reached, and that threshold can depend on a lot of things, how infectious the organism is, how close people are living together, what kind of contact they have, etc., etc., if enough people get a given type of vaccine, it can become very difficult for an infection to spread within that population. And essentially, through herd immunity, we can protect our individual's with severe immunodeficiencies. That's why it's so important that healthy kids get vaccines. That's why it's so devastating when parents of healthy children decide not to get vaccines because of some ridiculous or false claim they heard on the internet or from a celebrity about why they shouldn't get the vaccine. The people who have the biggest risk from those situations are those kids who have severe immunodeficiencies and just can't get the vaccine. So that's a little bit about herd immunity. That's a little bit about immunodeficiency. But I want you to know that is the first big differentiation in the vaccine world. Is it a live vaccine? Is the organism that you are injecting into somebody alive? If it is and they have immunodeficiency, think twice, look it up, and decide if this is the safe the, the safe thing to do, if that person should get the vaccine or not. Okay, I think we have underscored the importance of the rotavirus vaccine. It's the most common cause, again, of severe gastroenteritis worldwide, and most kids are going to be getting a vaccine at two and four months. The next important live attenuated vaccine on the pediatric infant and child immunization schedule is the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. That combines three different vaccines uh, for three different organisms. Sometimes it's also combined with the varicella zoster virus vaccine. Both of those vaccines, the MMR vaccine and the varicella zoster vaccine, are given at 12 and given between 12 and 15 months, and then again later at four and six years. This vaccine is given subcutaneously as opposed to rotavirus which was given orally and both of which are very very efficacious. They work 
really, really well. The MMR vaccine does contain a few different ingredients to be aware of. One is neomycin and the other is gelatin. And so if an individual, say, has a severe allergy to neomycin, you're not going to be able to give them that vaccine. With live attenuated vaccine, one of the best parts is that people get really, really good immunity from these. Oftentimes, they only require one or two doses, and oftentimes they don't need any booster throughout life. And so that's one of the great benefits is that they do provide really, really good immunity. You don't really hear this in the pediatric population as far as vaccines go, but in adults, it's typically um, the plan that live attenuated vaccines should either be given on the same day or 30 days apart. And that is important because if there's a theoretical risk that if it's given, say, less than 30 days apart but not on the same day, the immune response to the second vaccine may not be as powerful. Now, you always have to judge that risk against, is this person going to come back? What is their risk of getting the infection? Should I just give them the vaccination now and be done with it? Another important point to understand, not just for live attenuated vaccines, but for all vaccines, is that there are different manufacturers that make slightly different formulations of given vaccines. In general, it is best to complete a given vaccine series with the same manufactured type of vaccine. So if you're going with, say, the MMR vaccine from a given manufacturer, it's best to continue with that for the whole series. However, if the same vaccine from the same manufacturer is not available, but a different one is, it's recommended to just give the vaccine. It may not be as good, but the chances of somebody missing a dose and not getting it later or getting the infection in the interim are high enough that it's just better just to give the vaccine with whatever formulation you have available, even if that's different from other vaccines received earlier in the series. If an individual misses a vaccine, if they're off the timeline, that's okay. There are catch-up schedules online on the CDC's website in the references for all of the different childhood, teenager, and adult vaccines. So don't overthink this stuff. If people are due for a vaccine, give it. It's okay if they're out of the time frame. There's really good guidance online. Just download those charts. Get familiar with them. Put them in every room in your office. Get your kids and adults vaccinated. All right, just to recap. Live attenuated vaccines are living organisms which have had their DNA mutated such that they no longer cause disease in healthy individuals. The live attenuated vaccines on the infant and pediatric United States schedule, as well as many other countries, are rotavirus, measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella zoster virus. These are excellent vaccines because they cause robust immune reactions. Typically, you only need one or two doses to get a good effect, and no boosters are generally necessary. On the flip side, people with immune deficiency can sometimes 
get disease from these attenuated viruses and you have to oftentimes be very cautious in those populations. If you don't know if it's safe to give an immunodeficient individual given vaccines, look it up beforehand. Alright, the next major group of vaccines are the whole inactivated vaccines. These are the infectious organism. So for instance, poliovirus, influenza, hepatitis A. They have been killed usually with formalin or, or for, by soaking them in formaldehyde basically. And they're then injected usually intramuscularly directly into the person. There are three vaccines on the infant and pediatric schedule commonly used which are inactivated whole vaccines and those are poliovirus, influenza, and hepatitis A. Poliovirus is typically given as an intramuscular or subcutaneous injection at 2, 4, 6, and 18 months and then sometime between 4 and 6 years. This is a really important vaccine. Worldwide, we have been trying to eradicate it. It has been challenging. There's only two countries left in the world where wild type 1 polio still exists, and those are Afghanistan and Pakistan. Those have been difficult areas for public health uh, people to infiltrate. If you think public health is tough in the United States right now, go to Afghanistan. Anyway, a lot of times we've used oral attenuated polio vaccines for that international campaign um, because they're cheaper and, um, and there's other characteristics that make them uh, more enticing for those purposes. Interestingly, when people take live oral polio vaccine, they can then poop out the vaccine in areas where sanitation isn't good. Other children end up... Uh, ingesting it and then they themselves get some immunity. Sadly, because in certain areas vaccine levels have remained low, certain strains of the oral attenuated vaccine have continued to cycle through various kids on the fecal to oral route. And over the course of around 12 months, those viruses can mutate such that you get a oral attenuated vaccine which has mutated to become more pathogenic and in places like Africa there's now circulating vaccine derived polio virus that's infecting kids. It's generally not nearly as pathogenic as wild type polio virus type 1 but just some of the craziness and um, I just can't help but uh, think about how coronavirus has now been circulating for 12 months and we're seeing new virulent strains mutate out of it uh, you really want to get your infections under control because if you don't, bad things can happen. They can change, they can shift, and you can have bad deals occur. But anyway, back to inactivated vaccines. The next main one is influenza virus. This is typically given to kids after six months of age. It's an inactivated intramuscular vaccine. It's something kids have to get every year. It's produced using um, eggs but it's purified out from those egg proteins. And so even kids with severe egg allergies can receive the flu virus. Unfortunately, the flu virus is not nearly as efficacious as all the other vaccines in this infant and child category that I'm going to mention today. 
it kind of makes me sad because a lot of people use this as a reason why they don't like vaccines. They say, oh, I got the flu vaccine, but I still ended up getting the flu. Unfortunately, the, the flu vaccine only covers for either two um, types of influenza A and one type of B, and there's also a quad that covers two types of A and two influenza B. But either way, if you don't get the right strain, if um, any number of different things happen, people can still get influenza. And because it doesn't work as good as we would like, people sometimes rag on all vaccines just because the influenza vaccine isn't so good. And it's it's the one vaccine that every year we really harp on everybody to get. And so I really can't wait until we come up with a universal flu vaccine. We get rid of influenza in our population for good, and that'll really um, that'll mean a lot less deaths in the United States alone. Between 12 and 60 million people, sorry, between 12 and and 60,000 people die every year of influenza. So when we can get rid of that one, it's going to be a big deal. Until then, the in, annual influenza vaccine is still our best bet at chipping down at those numbers because it is such a serious and such a potentially fatal disease, especially in the very young and the very old. The next whole inactivated vaccine is the hepatitis A vaccine. This one only requires two doses, which is pretty nice. It's usually given six months apart, sometime between uh, 12 and 24 months. Hepatitis A is one of the most common infections acquired in travelers, and so you really want to think about offering this vaccine to your adult traveler patients who may not have had this on their immunization schedule when they were a child. Another point with hepatitis A is that since humans are the only known reservoir, it is a target for potential eradication, which is pretty cool. The, the idea of getting rid of some of these really pathogenic diseases that hurt a lot of people is a really, really cool thing. So those are those are your inactivated vac whole vaccines. They're usually treated with formaldehyde, and so you're injecting basically whole dead organisms into people to then generate an immune response. The three vaccines are poliovirus, influenza, and hepatitis A. The next group of vaccines are what I call subunit vaccines. And instead of giving someone a whole dead organism, with a subunit vaccine, you only give them part of that organism. Usually this is a protein or other molecular structure that is um, what we call an antigen. And an antigen is something that an antibody can, a specific antibody can bind to and recognize. The best example for the pediatric schedule is the hepatitis B virus vaccine. This is a basically what's called the hepatitis B surface antigen. It's a protein that lives on the outside of the hepatitis B virus uh, particle and it's basically made using recombinant DNA technology in yeast cells. So what happens if, is we take the gene that codes for the surface antigen, we put that into the DNA of the yeast cell, we put something before the gene that tells it to just keep making it and don't stop, and then we use biomolecular techniques to purify out that, that hepatitis B surface antigen and make it into a vaccine. So pretty cool, pretty crazy stuff. And because of that technique, one contraindication 
to the hepatitis B vaccine is a severe allergy to yeast. And if you've, you've thought or looked at hepatitis B virus, you know that when you test for hepatitis B, you look at both the surface antigen and then another antigen called the core antigen. And you can tell if someone's been vaccinated because they have the surface antigen, but you can tell if someone's had the real infection if they have antibodies to the core, core protein as well. So just kind of an interesting aside. But um, the HPV vaccine is generally given within 24 hours of birth. It's the only vaccine that we give right away. Then again, between one and two months of life. And then again, between six and 12 months of life. It's given intramuscularly. And this is a, a really important vaccine. Most people don't realize it, but up to 25,000 babies are born to mothers that are carrying hepatitis B virus in the United States every year. 25,000. That's quite a bit. 90% um, of these kids will uh, acquire HBV during um, labor and delivery. And so a lot of the kids are going to end up getting it from those 25,000 mothers in the absence of any prevention strategies. And then 25% of those babies who get it will actually die prematurely of cirrhosis. So kind of an, uh, an important intervention early on in life and something that you don't necessarily want to miss. If you do know that the mom is positive for hepatitis B virus and, and you do end up delivering vaginally, you not only want to give hepatitis B virus, but you also want to give hepatitis B immunoglobulin. And it's really important to remember to give those to give the vaccine and the immunoglobulin at different sites. Because if you give them right next to each other in the same place, there's the, the very high or theoretical risk, at least, of having those, those immunoglobulins being neutralized by the, the vaccine. Or sorry, the, the immunoglobulins neutralizing the antigens from the vaccine. So you want to give those in different sites. The same goes for like post-exposure prophylaxis for rabies. Okay, so those are subunit vaccines, usually part uh, or, uh, sorry, uh, one or multiple antigens, but not the whole organism. And the DNA hepatinovirus hepatitis B is the best example from the pediatric schedule. The next group of vaccines is very, very similar to the subunit vaccines, and I call these the subunit conjugated vaccines. And these are different in that the subunits or antigens used to make the vaccine are not immunogenic enough by themselves to create a good enough immune response to give lasting protection from the given infection. And so in order to improve the immunogenicity of the given antigen injection, they are conjugated to other proteins or molecules which are more immunogenic can stimulate the immune system more and then kind of cross-react with the antigen of interest and create long-lasting better immunity. There's really two good examples from the infant and pediatric vaccine schedule and those are the hemophilus influenza type V conjugate vaccine and the pneumococcal vaccine. Both of these organisms are encapsulated bacteria. They have a capsule around them that allows them 
a certain level of pathogenicity. And in fact, the majority of severe infections in children, namely bacteremia and meningitis, are caused by these encapsulated organisms like Streptococcus pneumoniae, Neisseria meningitis, Haemophilia influenza, uh, group B strep or Streptococcus agalactia, and even Salmonella is another example. And for that reason, and because of the danger of these encapsulated organisms and the importance of the spleen in the immune protection, it, it's really important, or at least people try to, not remove the spleen in kids less than five years of age. But those are the two vaccines given to children and, or sorry, to infants and children um, that are encapsulated. The hemophilus influenza type B vaccine and the pneumococcal vaccine. The Hib vaccine or H influenza type B is given at two, four, six months and then between 12 and 15 months. So it's a four dose series. Sometimes it's given as a combination or a pentavalent combination with DTaP and HPV vaccine as well. And in general, a lot of times we try to batch as many of these vaccines together in kids as possible, just because kids hate shots. There's so many different diseases to vaccinate against now that we try to make it uh, as as less traumatic as possible, as, as few shots as possible. Um, with the advent of the Hib vaccine, we, we've seen less pneumonia, less, a lot less meningitis, and virtually almost never do we see epiglottitis. Um, the antigen used in the vaccine is the polysaccharide capsule, and in particular um, a molecule called PRP, or polyribosomal ribotol. And this antigen by itself just does not create a robust immune reaction. And so what we do is we conjugate um, this PRP molecule to an immunogenic carrier protein or a conjugate. Um, some common examples are titanospasm or the, or the tetanus toxoid protein, uh, mutant diphtheria protein, or even meningococcal group B outer membrane protein. Um, it's important to note that unencapsulated species of Hib are not infected by the vaccine. And these are what we commonly see causing otitis media, conjunctivitis, and sinusitis, and sometimes even pneumonia. And that's why you still see these things coming up on the ward, like, you know, what are the three main causes of otitis media, one of which is hemophilus influenza. The next subunit conjugated vaccine is the pneumococcal vaccine. This is given at two, four, six, and then between 12 and 15 months of age. So both the H-flu and pneumococcal vaccine are given at the same intervals. This is a the PCV13. It's active against 13 uh, of the most common serotypes for um, streptococcus pneumonia. It's given intramuscularly, and it's often conjugated to the CRM197 protein, which is a non-toxic mutant of diphtheria toxin, as well as an aluminum adjuvant. And remember I said earlier that uh, that's kind of one of the new things that people are kind of freaking out about is the aluminum adjuvant. Uh, they're worried that it could be dangerous or toxic to the kid. Um, it's possible that it could have a very, 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 very small toxic component, but the harm is probably very minimal, and it is certainly much, much less 
than the pneumococcal vaccine. But should we be trying to change it out for something with absolutely zero potential of harm? Perhaps. Worth looking into for sure. So those are the subunit conjugated vaccines. We often see these with um, encapsulated vaccines that have antigens of low immunogenicity. And so what we have to do is conjugate them to other proteins like the tetanus toxoid so that the immune system can make a, a more robust reaction to them. All right, in the final group of toxins, or sorry, of vaccinations is really the toxin vaccinations. And we really see that in one vaccine in particular, and that is the diphtheria, tetanus, and acellular pertussis vaccine. Now let me first say that the acellular pertussis component is actually not a toxoid vaccine. It is a uh, subunit vaccine, essentially, with parts of the pertussis vaccine or antigens from the pertussis organism. There's also, in other countries, a DTWP vaccine, and the W stands for whole pertussis, and that's a whole inactivated formulation of the cell. And so when we're talking about this new group, the toxin-mediated vaccines, we're really talking about diphtheria and tetanus. Now, both diphtheria and tetanus are bacterial infections that are pathogenic mostly because of the toxins they produce. Diphtheria, for example, tends to latch on to the back of the throat and then essentially hurls its toxins all around the body, which can cause a severe bad infection. Tetanus, on the other hand, tends to cause infections in wounds, and those wounds that are infected with the bacteria Clostridium tetani tend to make a toxin, uh, titanospasmin, which cause severe muscle spasms. And uh, like starting with lockjaw and then other parts of the body, people can break bones because these contractions are so strong. And historically, and, and even in the modern times, people who get this infection can die in up to 20% of cases. So really something important to prevent uh, tetanus along with um, diphtheria as well. This vaccine is given at 2, 4, 6, and between 15 and 18 months, again at between 4 to 6 years. So basically you're getting 5 doses of this vaccine before age 6. Starting at age 11, you start to need boosters. And remember, the tetanus diphtheria you're getting every 10 years or every 5 years if you get a bad cut. And it's recommended that sometime you also get, uh, or occasionally you also get boosted for acellular pertussis as well. So this is a really common vaccine that you're getting kind of throughout your entire life. Um, there are some contraindications to this vaccine. It, it can be uh, a little more, I shouldn't say harsh, but there's some rare reactions to be, uh, to, to be aware of. Anaphylaxis, of course, which we've mentioned and is a, an issue for all vaccines. But then it, some people, and really, really rarely, people, this is really rare stuff. 
one in a million type stuff, can get an encephalopathy within seven days of treatment, which should prevent you from wanting to give it again. And then anyone who gets Guillain-Barre syndrome less than six weeks after administration should not receive um, the vaccination again either. There's also a severe cutaneous reaction, um, which is what we call an arthritis type, which consists of bleeding, edema, swelling, and sometimes even necrosis. Uh, just a really bad local reaction, and that can be a, a reason not to give the vaccine as well. All right, after kids become older and are teenagers, there's a few other vaccines which are recommended. One is Neisseria meningitis or meningococcal quadrivalent vaccine for AC. W and Y serotypes. There's another type of meningococcal vaccine against um, a serotype B, which is recommended in those individuals which are going to be around a lot of other people, like, say, kids going to college in a dormitory, military recruits, etc. On top of that, like we talked about, the hep human papillomavirus, nine-valent vaccine, extremely important for young women and, and men as well, can prevent... Um, oncogenic strains of human papillomavirus as well as strains which cause um, warts. So that's another one to think about and is really important. Let's just quickly recap all of the types of vaccines and the vaccines that are actually used in the United States infant and pediatric schedule. The first is the live attenuated vaccines. Those consist of rotavirus, measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella zoster virus. The next group is the whole inactivated vaccines. Those are poliovirus, influenza, and hepatitis A. The next group is the subunit vaccines that just consist of one or multiple antigens. Uh, hepatitis B virus is, or hepatitis B is, is the vaccine for that. The next are the subunit conjugated vaccines. These are antigens that have poor immunity immunogenicity by themselves and so must be conjugated to other molecules to improve their immunogenicity. The examples are hemophilus influenza type B and streptococcus pneumonia vaccines. The next group are the toxin vaccines and the vaccine to think about is the diphtheria tetanus and acellular pertussis vaccine. Again acellular pertussis is a subunit vaccine essentially. A lot of times, people will tell you, I think I've gotten all my childhood vaccines, but they're not totally sure. These are usually adults or older people that don't have records to the vaccines they um, were given when they were a child. A good way to check if they have immunity or have received vaccines is by checking titers. These are essentially uh, blood draws, which look for antibodies. Um, some really common and inexpensive titers available are to hepatitis A and B, varicella, measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, and diphtheria. Um, at my clinic, we offer that package for $205, which is a pretty good deal, I think. There's also other titers commercially available as well. Um, if you are interested. This can be a much cheaper option for people than giving them uh, basically the vaccine again and oftentimes are just a good way to show that the vaccine worked and sometimes 
uh, jobs or countries or things like that may require titers to, to actually prove immunity as opposed to just showing that a vaccine was given. All right, that was kind of a big 101 episode on vaccines. There was a lot to say, and believe it or not, there's still a lot more to say. But I just wanted to lay the groundwork and, and talk about some of the most common types of vaccines currently being used for clinical medicine. There are a number of other um, theoretical types of vaccines. There's a number of other experimental vaccines in existence. Um, interestingly, the HPV vaccine is kind of like a shell of a virus with um, one of the protein antigens on the outside. So it's kind of a unique vaccine class in and of itself. But there's many, many more. In the next episode, I want to talk about a brand new technology the mRNA vaccines, which were used to make several of the successful coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. This is a really novel approach to vaccine construction. It's a very adaptive uh, mechanism whereby you can change out the mRNA for different organisms and potentially come up with vaccines in a matter of weeks to a few months. So a really powerful tool in an age where epidemics and pandemics of new diseases are going to become increasingly common. So thanks so much for listening this time, and I hope you tune in for the next episode about the SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccine. To summarize the 26 infectious diseases for which we currently have vaccinations in the United States, I'd like to call on the classic Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere, Man, of course, with a little twist. I've had every disease, man. I've had every disease, man. Across the desert, bear, man. I breathed infected air, man. I travel and I had my share, man. I've had every disease. I've had adenovirus, anthrax, cholera, diphtheria, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hemophilia, influenza B, HPV, influenza, Japanese encephalitis, mesomenicere, meningococcal, mumps, pertussis, pneumococcal pneumonia. I've had every disease, man. I've had every disease, man. I've had polio, rabies, rotavirus, rubella, shingles, smallpox, tetanus, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, varicella, zoster virus, yellow fever. I've been everywhere, man. I've had every disease. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, d disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.